see each one of you and see your smiling faces. It's good to be back. I was gone for a couple of weeks, and I had the opportunity to see my family, my sister, and her two young boys, age two and four. My two nephews had not met little Judah yet, my five-month-old son. And so that was nice to have all the family together and get the cousins interacting. And Rowan, which I've mentioned uh, at this church before, when he was first born, I was excited I had a nephew. And little did I know that four years later I'd have my own son, but uh, he was uh, very gentle with Judah. And he would rub his back and uh, he, um, would, he calls Judah Juna with an N. That's uh, his name, little Juna. And he kind of mixes his uh, pronouns so we had to uh, correct him a number of times when he kept on calling it a she, and we said, no, Rowan, it's a he, but uh, he would laugh and do it again, but uh, yes, so we, we had a good time, and uh, he uh, is learning, learning quickly, and it was a blessing to be together with family, um, and as I think about my own family and spending time, I know uh, that while our immediate family is a blessing, church family is a blessing too, and praise God that we can be together in God's house. And as we uh, study the book of James, we're continuing and marching through the book of James, and we'll be in James chapter 4 today. And you can go ahead and turn there before we pray. We'll be in James chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. And I believe that God um, has a message for us today. So why don't we bow our heads and ask God to be with us as we begin this morning. Father... I want to thank you so much for the opportunity and the privilege to study the holy word of God. And Lord, I thank you that this book is not an ordinary book. I pray that as we look at and study and read this passage in James, that your Holy Spirit would speak to hearts. And Lord, may... Each of us come away with a closer walk with you as we draw near to you. We love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, over the last month, we have had two conventions. One with the symbol of DNC and also RNC. And some of you are getting nervous because I'm talking about politics and church, but don't worry, we won't go too much farther than that, but I have been interested as I've watched the news and looked at my social media feed at the tension and anger that is seemingly present as people talk about these two candidates and discuss who will be the next president of the United States of America. Uh, just a couple of months ago was at the home of uh, some relatives and, and politics got brought up. And it's amazing the emotion that can come in people's hearts and mind as they're passionate about their opinion. Trying to convince the other, no, this is the right way. No, this is the right way. Friends on Facebook who spend time with each other can battle it out back and forth, uh, completely ignoring any decency or kindness, it seems. There's a lot of, of wars and fighting and arguments and disputes right now in our country. And you know, unfortunately, this has been taking place for a long time. 
Arguments, quarrels, disputes, fighting is not something new to the human race. In fact, it was happening very much so in James' day because James spends some time addressing this issue. Brian Cook gave a message a couple of weeks ago talking about taming the tongue. And James talks about to his readers the danger of the tongue and what words can do. So there was arguing and disputes and quarrels and fights happening in James' day. And he begins chapter 4 and verse 1. If you want to look there with me, James chapter 4 and verse 1. He begins with a simple question that I have wondered myself. Where do wars and fights come from among you? I've asked that question before. Lord, why can't we all get along? Where do these quarrels and fights and wars, where do they come from? Where do they initiate? What is causing all of this? And the Bible tells us the root of this conflict. Notice what the Bible says next in verse 1. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members. The root cause of this bitter conflict that we see today is self. Desire. Desire for pleasure. Desire for my way. The word, therefore, desire for pleasure is where we get our English word hedonism or hedonistic. And one commentator was reflecting on the Ten Commandments, and he he personally thought it was interesting that the Ten Commandments culminate and in the forbidding of covetousness or desire. And he suggested that the reason why is because desire is the worst of all the passions of the heart. Notice what this commentator wrote. He says, is it not because of this passion that relations are broken and that great and populous countries are desolated by domestic dissensions and land and sea filled with ever new disasters. For the wars famous in tragedy have all flowed from one source, desire. Desire for money or glory or pleasure. Over these things, the human race goes mad. And isn't that the truth? Quarreling over my way. Desire for money or glory. We want to get what we want. And this is why James says in verse 2, he says, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war. You don't have what you want. You can't obtain it. You want it so bad that you're lusting over it. You're coveting it. You're fighting and warring. And James says these people are even willing to take someone's life to get what they wanted. Perhaps today we won't go quite that far to get what we want, but what is our response when things don't go my way? When things don't go quite as I expect them to, what is my response? Is it with anger? Is it perhaps manipulation? Perhaps the reason that we're not really getting what we want is at the end of verse 3, or at the end of verse 2. At the end of verse 2, which we didn't read, it says, You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not what? Ask. You do not have because you do not 
ask. Perhaps the reason that we're not getting what we want, James says, is because we're trying to take the situation into our own hands. We're not even involving God in the picture we don't ask. We say, you know, God, I've got this one. Maybe you can get the next one, but this one's on me. We try to take things into our own hands. But sometimes, James continues, even if we do ask, even if we do go to God for help in situations, maybe we're not asking with a pure motive. Notice what James says in verse three. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask how? Amiss or wrongly that you may spend it on your pleasures. You ask, you pray to God for answers to your prayers, but you ask amiss. You ask wrongly. Why? For what purpose? To spend it on your pleasures. Now we can ask God for for anything, right? Why, Why would James say this? You know, God, I really, really think that that brand new Tesla would look nice in my driveway. Mm. God, do you think you could make that happen for me? Father, that million-dollar property on the coast, mm, man, wouldn't that be a nice place to reside? Asking to spend on your pleasures. 1 John 5.14 says this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Is there a lot more of me in my prayers or others? The story goes of a young boy who wanted to unfortunately experiment. He found a cigar and he slipped into a back alley and though it did not taste good, it made him feel grown up until the boy saw his father coming. Quickly, he put it behind his back and tried to be casual, and he was desperate to divert his father's attention, so he pointed to a billboard advertising the circus. Uh, Dad, can I go? Please, please, when the circus comes to town, can I go? Do, 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 do. Well, the father's reply taught the boy a lesson that he would never forget. Son, the father answered quietly but firmly, never make a petition while at the same time trying to hide a smoldering disobedience. Never try to make a request while at the same time hiding a smoldering disobedience. And friends, isn't it true that the same goes with making petitions to our Heavenly Father? If we are hiding sin behind our back, thinking, you know what, God's, you know, maybe he won't find out, or maybe this person, God has a hard time answering those requests. When we're openly friendly at church and talking to others and acting like nothing's wrong, but then during the week, committing open sin, the Bible says that that is asking amiss to spend on your pleasures. And the Bible even goes as far to say that when we are asking for our pleasures, that when we're fighting, when we're warring, we're trying to get our way, that we in fact are breaking our marriage vows. Notice verse four and the strong language that James uses. James isn't afraid to call something what it is. Verse four, he says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world 
makes himself an enemy of God. Wow. Strong language that James uses. In the Bible, as many of you know, the sacred relation that exists between Christ and his church is compared by the union of a marriage. The Lord has brought his people together by a solemn promise and covenant. God promises to be their God and his people pledge to be his and only his. And so when the church of Christ is unfaithful in permitting her affection to be turned from God to someone else, When worldly things occupy the soul, it is likened, similar to, the breaking of the marriage vow. Wow. When the love of worldly things occupy the soul, the Bible says that that is making yourself an enemy of God. That when you are buddy-buddy with the world, when you're friends with the world, arm-in-arm, walking down the rose petals there on the path, like nothing's wrong. The Bible says that that is making yourself a friend with God and, in fact, his enemy. Notice here what uh, this author says. Between the worldly man and the one who is faithfully serving God, there is a great gulf fixed. Upon the most momentous subjects, God and truth and eternity, their thoughts and sympathies and feelings are not in harmony. One class is ripening as wheat for the garner of God, the other as tares for the fires of destruction. How can there be unity of purpose or action between them? Hmm. Strong quote. That when there are people that their desire, their purposes, their intentions are not for God, or for eternity, or for truth, and we are uniting with them, perhaps we're becoming an enemy of God. Now, on the opposite end, she writes next, but we are to beware of an indulging a spirit of bigotry and intolerance. We are not to stand aside from others in a spirit that seems to say, come not near me, I am holier than thou. Do not shut yourselves away from your fellow men, but seek to impart to them the precious truth that has blessed your own heart. Let it be manifest that yours is the religion of love. Amen? So we're trying to win those that are in the world to Jesus, but not be united with them. This last quote here struck me from Patriarchs and Prophets. Satan is using every means to make crime and debasing vice popular. We cannot walk the streets of our cities without encountering flaring notices of crime. Isn't that the truth? Presented in some novel or to be acted out at some theater, the mind is educated to familiarity with sin. Mercy. The course pursued by the base and vile is kept before the people in the periodicals of the day, and everything that can excite passion is brought before them in exciting stories. They hear and read so much of the debasing crime that once tender conscience, which would have recoiled with horror from such scenes becomes hardened and they dwell upon those things with greedy interest. Can I hear a mercy? Mercy, wow. Wow. And as I read what James says here, and you'll have to pick it up with God, not me, because the Bible's the one that's saying this. But I think to myself, Lord, is there any worldliness in my heart? Are there places in my heart that have more of the world than you? 
Are there places in my heart that are not in harmony with you? Perhaps the world is creeping into your home or heart. Perhaps it's what the world watches or listens to, or maybe it's the world's attention to dress and fashion. Or perhaps it's in the area of appetite or food. Or maybe it's the worldly spirit of gossip or the spirit of unkindness and unforgiveness. Anything that is not the spirit of unselfish love is the spirit of the world. And James here says, search your hearts and be faithful to your marriage vow, amen? And the reason, friends, I believe James is allowed to be so strong, the reason that God is uh, able to say these things is because he loves us so much. Look at verse five. It says, do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? You know why God says what he does is because he is jealous for your heart. He is jealous for your heart. And wouldn't anyone be? If someone's spouse ran away with someone else, they would be jealous for their time and attention and love. And God is the same with us. God is the same with us. He, his jealousy is not the selfish kind. Human beings' jealousy is selfish. Jealous of someone else's things or the way someone looks. It's a selfish jealousy, but God's jealousy is not selfish because it's based on a genuine desire and concern for the people he created. He is jealous for every single part of us. He's jealous for our, our, our mind, our heart, our time, our hands, our feet. Jesus wants it all. And so when we have one foot that's in the world and one that's in God's, God says, yeah, I want that foot back. If we're trying to grasp God's hand in the world at the same time, he says, you know what, there's, there's no middle ground with Jesus. You can't be on the fence. You can't have one foot in and one foot out. You're either all in or all out, the Bible says. But you know what? I have found that there is not a reason in the world that I shouldn't be all God's. Amen? There is not a reason in the world that I should not be all God's. Being all God's is the best thing that I can do. And the reason why, verse 6, is because it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the reason that it's so easy to be all God's is because God's character is a character of love. And God is willing to give us that love. He demands undivided allegiance but he provides man with sufficient strength to enable to follow him. And James here quotes from uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, where God resists or scorns the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, why would God resist the proud? And I think it's quite simple. Because if I am out on a trail somewhere, and I don't think that I am lost, or maybe I'm off the trail. And I say, you know what? I'm not lost. Why would I want to be saved if I don't think I'm lost? If I'm out there in the woods and someone says, hey, you need to be saved. You are lost. And I say, I'm not lost. Why would I want to be saved? Only those who know that they're lost want to be saved. Only those who realize that my condition in my heart is a lost condition, I need a savior, are able and willing. So God resists the proud, but those that are humble and say, whew, I need help. 
he is able to give each one of them grace. We have an awesome, awesome God. The next four verses are some of my favorite. Verses seven through 10. Because here James transitions and before where he gives this strong language and says, hey, you can't be a friend with the world and yet a friend of God at the same time. My question is how? How do I go all in? How do I resist this flood that is coming against me? And friends, there is a flood coming against Christianity. I just heard this past week that uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy, how many of you guys have heard of Bill Nye the Science Guy? On uh, television, he had visited the uh, ark that uh, is in Kentucky. Maybe I read about that. The individual set up this uh, large ark there with a museum and all about creationism, amen? That God is able to and did create the world in six literal days and rested on the seventh. And Bill Nye uh, had somewhat of a working relationship. And someone remind me who the art guy, Ham or something like that. Uh, thank you. Um, so uh, Bill Nye is, is on television and they were asking about his experience with the ark. And he comes out and he says, anyone who believes that the world was created in six days is stupid. Use those words. That creationism is stupid. And friends, that is precisely what the world thinks about Christianity. Christianity is stupid. And friends, there is a flood coming against Christians right now. It is hard to stand your ground with all of this coming our way, to stand up for God and to be faithful to him, and at the same time, lovingly pointing people to a savior. How do we do that? James tells us in verses seven through 10, and he gives us 10 imperatives to know how to do so. 10 imperatives. An imperative is a grammatical mood that expresses a command or request. And 10 different imperatives in verses 7 through 10 that I believe will help each one of us. And he starts out in verse 7 by saying, Therefore, submit to God. Submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We'll read the whole thing quickly. Verse 9, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Ten imperatives. The first, verse 7, therefore, submit to God. Submit to God. The word means to, to give in. It means to obey, to be subject to. And it's actually a Greek military term. Submit is a Greek military term, meaning to arrange troop divisions in a fashion under the command of a leader. To submit is to arrange a military troop under the command of a leader. And friends, isn't that our role as well? To arrange ourselves under our captain, Jesus Christ. And say, Lord, you are our leader. The story goes of the captain of a ship who looked into the dark night as he was going along and he saw faint lights in the distance. Immediately, he told his signalmen to send a message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. Promptly, a return message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain didn't like that. He was angered and his command had been ignored, so he sent a second message. 
alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain. Well, soon a message was received, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am seaman third class Jones. The captain definitely didn't like that, that someone that was lower than him trying to boss him around. And immediately the captain sent a third message knowing that it would evoke fear. Alter your course 10 degrees south, I am a battleship. Well, the reply quickly came, alter your course 10 degrees north, I am a lighthouse. (laughs) And friends, in the midst of dark and foggy times that we live, there are all sorts of voices that are shouting orders into the night, telling us what to do, how to live our life. And out of the darkness, one voice signal seems quite opposite to the rest, And that voice happens to be the light of the world, Jesus. And friends, if we ignore that voice, it's to our peril. Friends, submit yourself to the captain. Alter your course because God's course is straight and true. Submit to God. And then James says, resist the devil. As I look around, sometimes I think there's not a lot of resisting going on. Well, you know, I probably shouldn't do that, but it It's not that big of a deal. Just this once, nobody will know. To resist means to set oneself against, to oppose, to withstand. Friends, don't make it easy for the devil. Resist. And praise God that we can't do it on our own. Desire of Ages, page 130 says, we cannot save ourselves from the tempter's power. He has conquered humanity, and when we try to stand in our own strength, we shall become a prey to his devices. But the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. Satan, notice this last sentence, Satan trembles and flees before the weakest soul who finds refuge in that mighty name. Amen? Satan flees. He runs away from the soul that finds refuge in God. And that's what James says. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then James James says in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I like the imagery that comes from drawing close to something, to to coming in close proximity with something else. And in fact, that, that word means to bind yourself to one another. So I imagine my heart being glued to God's heart. And friends, I I have an honest question for you today. As you look at your own life, are you close to God? Do you feel far away? Do you feel near to God? Answer that honestly in your heart. Or, Or do you feel that something is amiss? The rich young ruler had kept all the commandments, He asked Jesus, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, keep the commandments. The man said, I've done all that from my youth. He had done what Jesus had said, but he knew that there was something still missing because he again asked, what else must I do? He knew that there was something that was wrong. And maybe someone here feels like there's just something wrong between God and I. Well, friends, I have good news found in the book of Jeremiah. And I invite you to turn there. It's not on the screen, but if you turn your Bibles quickly to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. 
after Isaiah, before Ezekiel, Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 23. Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 23. The Bible reads this. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23. Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? In other words, I am a God who is nearby, and I am not afar off. Amen? Friends, God is near at hand. He is not afar off. You don't have to travel on a pilgrimage to reach him. You don't have to go to one uh, specific place to find him. You can't earn his favor by something you've done. If you sense that you're not close to God, friends, I want you to know that God is near. So what then is causing that feeling of I don't feel close to God? What is getting in the way? Well, the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 59. So if you uh, just turn one book over, one book to your left, the book before Jeremiah, Isaiah chapter 59, what is causing the separation? What's causing the disconnect between our hearts and God if God is near at hand? Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2. The Bible reads, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Friends, God is a constant. He's like this wall. And when we sin, we push ourselves away from God. And it's not that God can't hear us, but we can't hear him. That pride puts up the wall of resistance. And the Bible tells us that sin separates us from God. In the very beginning, that's what caused the gap between God and his people. But friends, the Bible gives good news in verse 1. In verse 1, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not too short that it cannot save, nor his ear too heavy or dull that it cannot hear. Amen? Amen. Praise God that it's not as if I'm down here in this hole and I'm reaching up and God's like, ah, sorry, Jeff, my hand's not long enough to get you. Or you know what? Jeff, you've gone too far. If you cry out to me, I can't hear you anymore. Friends, God can always hear us. The question is, can we hear him? And you know what? Every single time that we simply cry out for help, he hears us. When we say, God, I've sunk too far. God, I've made too many mistakes. God, I need your help. That is exactly what God wants. And that is why, if we jump back to James, and thank you for allowing the detour there, that is why in James chapter 4, And verse 8, God says this after he says, draw near to God. James chapter 4, verse 8, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And James knows what separates us from God, sin. So he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Be open with God. That is what God is wanting, is a people that are honest and open with him. You know, my five-month-old son, uh, praise the Lord, is not mobile yet. He is not crawling or walking, and I've heard from many parents to enjoy that as long as it lasts, because it's going to be over quick, and we'll have to uh, have special attention then. But, But imagine that he was able to walk, and maybe he's walking along, and and he gets some sort of, of, of injury. 
You know, something, uh, he cuts himself and he has this, this wound there on his leg. If Judah tries to run away from his parents helping him, how can we help him patch up the wound? If he tries to run the opposite way and doesn't allow us to come down and help him fix his owie, how is he able to get help? Or maybe if Judah breaks something of mine, but he's afraid to tell me, how am I able to help him fix it? The very thing that God wants us is to come to him and say, God, please forgive me, I messed up. Because that's the only way that God is able to give us victory, amen? Is if we're open and honest with him. Notice what the book Christ's Object Lesson says. It says, not in our learning, not in our position, not in our numbers or entrusted talents, not in the will of man is to be found the secret of success. Feeling our inefficiency, we are to contemplate Christ. And through him who is the strength of all strength, the thought of all thought, the willing and obedient will gain victory after victory. Amen? The thought of all thought, the strength of all strength. That is how, friends, we gain victory. Jesus cleanses our hearts and our, our hands and purifies our hearts. Go to him and tell him what you are struggling with. And then James says in verse 9, three words that are hard to read while smiling and laughing. Lament, friends, and mourn and weep. Uh, those are serious words. They're hard to say with a smile. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, wait a second, James. Paul told the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. He said it twice. Again, I say rejoice. Proverbs says that laughter is like good medicine. James, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Are we supposed to walk around with a gloomy, sad countenance? You know, James here is using words that the prophets used to use. When the Israelites were caught up in sin, there was a time for serious repentance. There was a time to realize that something serious was going on and they needed to come to the Lord and repent of their sin and tell Jesus that they are sinners in need of a Savior. Friends, this is repentance language. There's a time to be serious. And he says, lament and mourn and weep. It doesn't mean that we have to walk around with sad countenances. But friends, more than ever before, with this event at our doorsteps, I think that there's a time to be serious. A, a time to take an honest look at our own hearts and to get down on our knees and say, God, I need you. God, I can't do it on my own. And sometimes our, our mirth, our laughter, our joking all the time is almost a narcotic that blinds us to our true condition. That, that blinds us to our true condition that we are sinners. And friends, I'm talking to me. There's a time to be serious, and James recognizes that. And he gives us what we should do in verse 10 as he ends with this last imperative. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. 
Someone once said that getting on your knees before God is the only way that you will get up on your feet. Getting on your knees before God is the only way that you will get on your feet. Because when you're on your knees, it's hard to stumble. Humble yourself before God, and the precious promise in verse 10 is he will lift you up. He will give you the grace and the strength that you and I need. Ten imperatives that James gives us. Submit, resist, draw near, cleanse, purify, lament, mourn, weep, turn, and humble. And friends, I believe that as as we are living in these last days, that if we would take a look at what James has to say, that it would help us to realize that there are rocks ahead and we need to listen to the captain's voice. We need to listen more than ever before to the captain's voice found in his word. We can't allow men and women and people in the world to guide us as we go forward. We have to allow the word of God. We can't trust our senses. We can't trust what we're seeing and feeling and touching. But we can trust what the word of God has to say. And I want to challenge you, friends, as you go from this place to do some serious soul searching. To go home with your family. To get on your knees and say, God, what do we need to do as your family to get ready for your soon return? God, how can we prepare for your coming? God, I don't want to have one foot in the world anymore. I don't want to have one hand connected. I want to be all yours. And if that is your desire today, I want to make a, just a simple appeal. If you desire to give yourself unreservedly to our King, to say, I don't want any longer to be in the world. I want to be fully Jesus. I want to be fully Christ. I want to be all His. If you want to listen to your captain's voice, would you simply stand with me today? Praise God. As Karen comes up, and begins